0: This is the Stand with Lynette podcast. You have episode eight, where food and faith meet. What would your life be like if you knew you could stand firmly on the covenant path, come what may? My name is Lynette Shepherd, and I am here to help you do just that. If you are a Latter-day Saint woman with a desire to brighten your faith as the world grows darker, you are in the right place together, let's stand. Hello, my friends. Welcome back. I'm so glad you're here for another episode of the Stand with Lynette podcast. I hope you find some light and some hope in what I share with you today. I want to start out by reading one of the reviews on Apple Podcasts for this podcast. And I'm so grateful for all of the reviews and ratings that have come in. I know I say this every week, but really, I am grateful. And I want to start sharing some of these reviews with you. And if I share your review on the podcast, you can send me a message on Instagram or an email or on my website, LynetteShepherd.com. There's a contact form. Contact me that way. Let me know what was your review. And I would love to share a little gift with you. So if you would like to have your your review read on the air, leave a five-star review for my podcast. Tell me one thing that you have learned, how it has helped your life. And again, if I share your review on the air, I will give you a special gift if you contact me. So this first review was by Chumberly A., (laughs) And she says, it's about time. The world needs more of this. I love Lynette's courage and confidence as she discusses gospel topics that can be controversial in a confusing world. She boldly draws a line in the sand, encouraging women to stand faithfully with the Lord. She also validates the struggle that often accompanies that step, step across the line while cheering us on to overcome. This podcast is truly a place of hope. Thank you so much for that wonderful review, Chumberly and I'm so grateful for you and again for all of the reviews. So keep them coming. I really appreciate that that it helps me to be able to reach more people and share more light with them. So Having said that, we are going to move on to today's topic, which I am very excited about. This is something that I am super passionate about, and I can't wait to share with you the things that I have learned and studied about this particular topic, which is where food and faith meet. We are going to talk about food. I love food. I've always loved food, but how does this fit into faith? That's what we're going to get into. And in fact, for the next several weeks, kind of throughout most of the summer, I'm going to be talking about different self-care topics that are very fundamental. They're going to address elements of mind, body, and spirit at kind of a fundamental level, and we're going to talk about how these ways of taking care of ourselves can really impact our faith and our spirituality, can open the door for us to be able to do more for the Lord, to stand more firmly, to have more energy, to have more strength and stamina. All of these things relate back to faith so beautifully, and I'm excited to share what I have learned because... Self-care is kind of a buzzword, and we're going to talk about it in relation to the gospel. So I'm going to marry those two things for you over the next few weeks. And let me just kind of start with a little bit of background on me and my journey of self-care, which I'm going to be really honest it did not always, I did not always prioritize this in my life. And maybe as a woman, maybe as a mother, you can relate to this. And as a young mom, especially, I did not practice good self-care habits. My husband was in dental school for the first, well, we, we were at BYU for the first few years of our marriage, and then he was in dental school for four more years, and then he was in residency for two more years, and so he was super busy, and I was very busy with my young family at home, and it was my responsibility to kind of keep things at home running smoothly so that he could focus on his education, and I had an apartment full of rambunctious children, and It was easier said than done to keep things running smoothly at home because that was much more of a challenge than I anticipated, but I did my best and I made sure that the house was clean and the laundry was done and the pantry and fridge were stocked and the kids were clean, fed, entertained, and educated, but not always necessarily in that order. And most of the time, I think I did a pretty good job of staying on top of that kind of stuff, but one thing was always neglected and that was myself. I longed to have time to do something for myself, but it seemed like someone else always needed me more. And on a student budget, which was pretty much non-existent, I did not feel like I could hire a babysitter for something as frivolous or that felt as frivolous as me time. At that point in time, I didn't even know how to answer the question, Lynette, what do you like to do? I didn't know what I liked to do. I loved my kids and I was grateful for the choice of of having them and of being a mother and of staying home with them. But I had somehow lost myself in the process. I didn't even have a connection to know, like, if I had free time, what would I even do? Like, I don't know. Like I got lost. And I didn't ever say this out loud, but sometimes I definitely felt resentful because it seems like it seemed to me at the time like I was giving everything for very little return on investment. Those kids didn't really care. They gave me trouble. They didn't. They weren't grateful for me. They just were angry a lot of the time. And it would be years, years, and years before I realized the importance of self-care. But when I finally learned it, I understood that not only did it allow me to show up as a better version of myself self, but it transformed my ability to manage stress. It increased my capacity, making it possible for me to accomplish more with much less overwhelm. It helped me to connect with God and find more peace and joy amid life's challenges. It allowed me to be the kind of wife, mother, friend, and individual that I wanted to be. Self-care was the transformative piece that I did not realize I was missing, and it became a life-giving force in my life. Now, maybe you were like I once was, where you feel like, I don't have time for self-care. How can I take care of myself when I have so many people depending on me to do so many things? But I hope that I will be able to teach you how important it really is and how it affects our spirits and how to fit this into your life. But I will be honest, it takes practice at first and it might feel a little clunky. It might feel like selfish, actually. It might feel like that, even though it's really, really not. It's not selfish. And I want you to say that with me out loud. Self-care is not selfish. And if you struggle to believe that, I invite you to repeat it to yourself every morning as an affirmation until you start to believe it. And in the meantime, try to establish a good self-care routine, routine, which again, I'm going to help you figure out what that looks like over the next few weeks. And first, I want to define self-care before we talk about how to put it into practice and before we get to today's topic, which is really about what we eat, because that is absolutely foundational in self-care. But some people think of self-care as manicures or massages or vacations or girls' night outs or whatever. And those things can be part of a self-care plan. But I believe the foundation of self care leans more toward this de- definition that I discovered with a quick Google search. Self care is the practice of taking an active role in protecting one's own well being and happiness, in particular during times of stress. So, with that in mind, let's meet the self care fundamentals, or as my mentor, Brick Snow, calls them, the fundies. On their own, each fundie may not seem like very much, but combined, they can and do make a huge difference over time. So the fundies are eat, sleep, move, breathe, be present, be prosperous, be grateful, and be joyful. The first four fundies focus on the body, eat, sleep, move, and breathe. The second four focus on the mind and spirit, and in fact, breath kind of is a bridge between these. But the second four are be present, be prosperous, be grateful, be joyful. Again, they focus on the mind and the spirit, and all eight work together to strengthen mind, body, and spirit, making it possible for us to truly thrive. Back last year, when I was feeling super overwhelmed by life, by responsibilities, by challenges that were happening in my life. I learned these fundamentals, or fundies, and I started putting them into practice and they absolutely transformed my life. I felt like I was drowning, again, everything felt hard, I was overwhelmed to the max. And as I learned the fundies, which are, again, eat, sleep, move, breathe, be present, be prosperous, be grateful, be joyful, as I learned them and started implementing them in my life. I drastically lowered my sugar intake. I walked at least 6,000 steps every day. I kept track of my sleep. I spent at least one hour every day without a screen. I implemented a meditation practice. I made journaling a priority. And after after several weeks of consistent effort in these fundamentals, I felt like a new woman. My circumstances had not changed. I still had all the same things on my plate, but I felt equal to each task. And my capacity to work through challenges and manage the stress in my life had exponentially multiplied. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this stuff really works. This is... This is important and I need to spread the word. But then as soon as I thought that life got pretty crazy and my daughter graduated from high school and we hosted a couple of late night parties at our home within a couple of days in one week and I didn't get adequate sleep, leaving me too tired to get up for my early morning exercise routine and then I added... Unhealthy foods into the mix and the emotional roller coaster of graduation, and I was a hot mess. And my old thoughts of inadequacy and overwhelm came back with a vengeance. Things that I had faced with confidence a few days prior felt like millstones around my neck, dragging me into the abyss of despair. And I briefly thought, what is wrong with you? Lynette, you should be able to do this. Just a couple of weeks ago, you felt so much better. What is going on? And then I recognized the problem. I had stopped doing most of the little things that were supporting me. I had stopped getting enough sleep. I'd stopped moving my body enough. I had started eating foods that were not supportive. I didn't always meditate. I was not doing those things that were supporting me. And the small and simple things that they were, I realized with great clarity how important they were, how much they had been supporting me. and. I learned for myself in that moment that the fundies are, indeed, miraculous. They seem basic, but the compound effect of implementing a few simple things over time with consistency, it defies logic. defies logics. So as we get into the specifics, my advice for you would to be would be to believe in the power of small and simple things and trust the process. Trust that these things will work for you in your life. So having said that, we are going to get into the crux of today's topic, which is funding number one, eat. I love this one because for as long as I can remember, I have loved both cooking and eating. I remember growing up and my mom was not a fan of cooking like I was, and she had some health problems that made it difficult for her to eat any kind of food that had onions or peppers or spices in it, and she didn't like a lot of sauces or dressings, and so we ate a lot of plain and bland food. Most of our vegetables came from a can or sometimes the freezer. Every once in a while, we'd have a salad with iceberg lettuce and maybe a couple of sliced cucumbers or carrots, and a bottle of ranch dressing. I do not remember ever ever having tasted any kind of fresh herb in all of my years growing up at home, and I thought that leafy greens other than lettuce were inedible. I didn't even know that you could eat them. At that point, we usually had white Wonder Bread or something similar that was slathered with margarine, not butter, and honey and sandwiches made with that same bread, often with those packets of thinly sliced ham and a Kraft cheese square. You know the kind, right? Where you peel off the plastic and how satisfying that was with the invention of the microwave, which I remember our first microwave. This dates me a bit, but I remember our first microwave and our dinner menu expanded to all varieties of quick processed foods that we could quote unquote zap in a matter of minutes. I didn't really know anything different and was therefore mostly satisfied with the food, except anything that contained tuna fish because that made me gag every time. Please tell me that you can relate. Can anyone relate to the tuna fish struggle? But when I learned to cook, I did so with an array of bland, canned, frozen, processed foods, mostly void of of spices and most fresh ingredients. But I loved it even as a kid, I loved to cook. And then as a young married woman, I became the casserole queen. I took what I had learned in my growing up years with the ingredients that I had been used to to, um, working with in that time period, and I bought cans of cream of chicken soup like it was going out of style, and I used it in probably half of the recipes that I made. And almost weekly, I made things like tater tot casserole and frozen pot pies and pigs in a blanket. Come on, pigs in a blanket are amazing, right? After my youngest son was born, I felt a pull to uplevel my eating and to incorporate more whole foods into my diet. So I went to the library in search of a resource that would help me with that. And I came across Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. I don't know if any of you have read the Omnivorous Dilemma, or anything by Michael Pollan, but the pages of that book opens my eyes to a whole world of food that I had never known. I learned about the modern American diet, the politics behind it, how it changed in the course of a generation, and how now it was filled with food-like substances, as Michael described them, that our ancestors would never have recognized. I learned about the negative health impacts of this new way of eating, including rising levels of obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, heart disease, and cancer. After reading that book, I would never again view food in the same light. I developed an insatiable desire to eat real, unprocessed food. I learned how to cook from scratch. I used all sorts of fresh ingredients. A cart filled with fruit and vegetables made my heart sing and literally to this day, it still does. And for a time back then, I did not eat anything that was not organic, farm fresh, natural, and unprocessed, including the milk with the cream still on the top. I purchased meat and eggs straight from local farmers. I went way out of my way to get food that fit this description. And I started reading every label. I refused to buy anything with an ingredient that I did not recognize, or mostly I refused to eat anything that had more than five ingredients total on the label. And I knew that this new way of eating was infinitely healthier than my processed, canned, frozen food roots. But it became a bit of an obsession. I was spending so much time tracking down and preparing food that fit my standards that I had little energy left for anything else. And then my kids became teenagers and I wanted them to invite their friends to our home. And what do teens like? Well, they like food, specifically junk food and lots of it. And I knew that I could not win their hearts with kale salad. So I lightened up a bit. I bought gasp, soda, with high fructose corn syrup. Oh my gosh, that had long been off of my list of approved things to eat. I bought soda, I bought candy, I bought chips. Oh my goodness. High fructose corn syrup and canola oil made it back into my pantry in the form of many processed snacks. And my kids definitely did not complain. And I stopped figuratively hyperventilating about every ingredient on a label. Well, I would still prefer to exclusively eat real food. That is not my current reality. I have since opted for moderation over obsession. I still cook dinner from scratch with lots of fresh ingredients almost every night, and those carts are full of fresh produce make my heart sing, and I have learned to use them with confidence. Processed meals are not part of our regular routine because I believe in the value of eating for health and flavor rather than mere satiety. But I am an advocate for moderation in all things, including this one. Having said that, however, because food is an integral part of self care and Oreos and ice cream will not create or sustain good well being over time, there are a few important things to consider when looking at self care through the lens of food. Understanding why the typical American diet is contributing to a large array of health problems allows us to make educated decisions about what we eat and why we eat it so let's talk a little bit about this modern american diet some people call it the mad diet some people call it the sad diet the standard american diet and this is what most americans typically eat and it is indeed making us sick this is not shocking news Probably most of us have already made this connection because of the rising rates of things like obesity, heart disease, and metabolic disorder. But did you realize that our diet is also increasing our risk of common brain disorders, such as anxiety, depression, and even dementia? Some experts are now believing that Alzheimer's disease should be called diabetes type 3 interesting. Diabetes type 3 because it causes inflammation of the brain. Could our diet be contributing to our unhappiness? It seems to be true. This seems so. But what has changed in our diets over the past 100 years that is contributing to this disease epidemic? According to Tyler Graham and Drew Ramsey in their book, The Happiness Diet, Over the course of the past 200 years, we've increased our sugar intake by 3,000%. This is the biggest single change to the human diet since the invention of fire. In the year 1800, Americans ate 5 pounds of sugar per year. 100 years later, our sugar consumption was at 70 pounds per year. Today, the average American consumes around 150 pounds of sugar and sweeteners per year. According to the USDA, we're eating as much sugar every week as we used to eat annually. Close quote. It is no surprise, then, that we are struggling to adapt to this fire hose of simple sugars that provide the backbone of nearly all processed foods. Our bodies were not designed to live, let alone thrive, on a diet loaded with the amount of sugar we currently consume. To grasp why this is a problem, it is important to understand what happens inside our bodies when we eat large amounts of simple sugars. The body's first response to sugar is to release the hormone insulin, which allows our cells to use that sugar for energy. If there is more sugar than needed for energy, insulin tells the body to store the surplus as glycogen in the liver and the muscles. When there is no more room for glycogen, insulin sends a signal to the body to turn any excess sugar into fat. The more sugar we eat, the more insulin is released into our blood. High levels of insulin over an extended period of time may result in a condition called insulin resistance. Or in other words, our bodies begin to ignore insulin, which leads to increased levels of both insulin and sugar in the blood. Enter type 2 diabetes with its array array of health challenges. But even if we never get diabetes, high sugar intake is also linked to an array of other health problems, including heart disease, cancer, premature aging, inflammation, depression, and dementia. We have been hearing about diet-related obesity, heart disease, and cancer for lots of years. So this is probably not a surprise to us. But recent studies have shown that areas with the highest sugar intake per capita are also the areas with the highest incidence of depression. Interesting. So the sweetness of sugar seems to create happiness in the moment, but its overuse is actually making us unhappy and depressed beyond the table. That is one of the reasons why this has such an important role in self-care. As an example from my life, for my entire adult life, for as long as I can remember, dating back to my early college days and probably even before that, I have struggled with chronic headaches, having several headaches every week. When I was pregnant with my fourth child, I had a headache that never went away. It lasted for the entire nine months of pregnancy and an additional six months after she was born. I had all the scans and the tests and they revealed nothing. In the years that followed, and honestly to this day, I never leave home without a bottle of Advil. And if I don't take Advil at the first sensation of pain, my head often hurts for days. And taking a few doses per week of Advil or Excedrin was typical for me for many years. Sometimes I would even take a few doses per day. Then last year with this program that I was working through and as I learned about the fundies and all of the effects that they have in our life, I drastically reduced my sugar intake. I gave up all drinks that contained sugar or sugar substitutes. I stopped eating dessert. I avoided granola bar, sweetened yogurt, and other sugar laden snacks. Within a couple of weeks, I noticed that my headaches were gone. They were gone. For eight weeks, I kept up this no sugar routine and I did not have a single headache for eight weeks. Then I went on vacation and I decided to loosen up a little bit and eat dessert. And within hours, my headaches were back and they remained a frequent visitor while I chose to eat sugar. And let me tell you, this is annoying information to have because I now know that I have a choice. I can choose to have headaches or not have headaches based on what I eat. I know what I need to do if I don't want to have headaches. I need to really limit the amount of sugar in my diet. So that is an obvious, that has become an obvious sugar-related condition for me. But what about all the things that are going on beneath the surface? What conditions are brewing that have few symptoms until they result in massive life-altering health problems? I know, I fully know and understand that limiting sugar is so hard in our world because it's everywhere and in nearly everything but if we want to feel better we have to be aware of the role that sugar can play in both mental and physical health and with awareness comes power to make changes There are, of course, many layers to the nutritional challenges that we face in America and much of the industrialized world. We could talk for hours about the demonization of saturated fat and the emergence of highly refined seed oils that were wrongfully promoted as heart healthy. We could talk about the falling levels of omega-3 and rising levels of omega-6 fatty acids in our diets and the health problems that they have created. We could talk about the industrialization of meat and how we are affected by the diets of the cows, the pigs, and the chickens that we eat. We could talk about chemicals in our food. And all of these factors have a significant effect on our overall health. But I believe that Michael Pollan hit the nail on the head when he said in his book, An Eater's Manifesto, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And by food, he meant real, unprocessed food in its most natural state. Food that your great grandmother would have recognized as food. If we can get back to our real food roots, we will be able to live happier, healthier lives. Now, again, I know this is not easy and we are definitely not perfect at it in our house. I have been doing much better with my sugar intake after having taken a break for a long time. I'm getting back onto the stick and again, realizing how wonderful it is not to have headaches every day. And also realizing that when I don't eat sugar for a while, then when I do eat it, I immediately get a headache and feel like garbage. <laughs> so that's maybe a clue of what that is doing to, to my overall health. So I know that this is not an easy thing to address. And I know that people get really attached to their diets. And I know that some people struggling struggle with eating disorders and any kind of food restriction or sugar, lo- trying to lower sugar whatever can be very triggering. So I advise you to take it from wherever you are and find what works for you. And again, I believe in moderation in all things. Moderation in all things. Even this thing. We don't need to go crazy at all. We can take it one step at a time. We can do what works for us. But let's talk for a little bit about what this has to do with faith. How does what we eat affect our spirituality. I think it's so awesome that our prophet Russell M. Nelson is a physician. He was a surgeon, and because of that, he has developed a great appreciation for the miracle of the human body. And he taught... Quote, the marvel of our physical bodies is often overlooked or underappreciated. The many amazing attributes of your body attest to your own divine nature. Each organ of your body is a wondrous gift from God. Each eye has an autofocusing lens. Nerves and muscles control two eyes to make a single three-dimensional image. The eyes are connected to the brain, which, which records the sights seen. Your heart is an incredible pump. It has four delicate valves that control the direction of blood flow. These valves open and close more than 100,000 times a day, 36 million times a year. Yet unless altered by disease, they can withstand such stress almost indefinitely. Think of the body's defense system. To protect it from harm, it perceives pain. In response to infection, it generates antibodies. The skin provides protection. It warns against injury that excess of heat or cold might cause. The body renews its own outdated cells. The body can heal its cuts, bruises, and broken bones. Its capacity for reproduction is another sacred gift from God. The body constantly regulates the levels of countless ingredients, such as salt, water, protein, oxygen, and carbon dioxide. Regulatory controls are manned without our awareness of these amazing realities. Remarkable as your body is, its prime purpose is of even greater importance, to serve as tenement for your eternal spirit. When we understand our nature and our purpose on earth and that our bodies are physical temples of God, we will realize that it is a sacrilege to let anything enter that might defile the body. Our creator puts appetites in our bodies to perpetuate the human race and fulfill his great plan of happiness. Thus, we have appetites for food, for water, and for love. Satan knows the power of our appetites, so he tempts us to eat things we should not eat, to drink things we should not drink, and to desecrate the most intimate expressions of love by employing them outside the bonds of marriage. When we truly know our divine nature, we will want to control such appetites. Close quote. Most of us will immediately see the connection between the adversary's desire to get us to drink things we should not drink, such as alcohol, and to love in ways that we should not love, but to eat things we should not eat. This is something President Nelson specifically mentioned, that the adversary tempts us to use our appetites to eat things we should not eat. Seeing what we just learned about excess sugar consumption and the MAD diet, is President Nelson teaching that the adversary could tempt us to eat in ways that would make us sick, sad, and prone to food addictions? Could that way of eating make it harder for us to make supportive choices, which in turn would lower our agency and make it harder for us to hear the voice of the Spirit? Could that way of eating cause health-related challenges that make it harder for us to serve in the Lord's kingdom? These questions are something to ponder. Our bodies are indeed temples. The Lord has given us stewardship over them. How can we run and not be weary and walk and not faint? Our bodies and spirits are inextricably connected. How can we fuel our bodies in ways That will also support our spirits. Although, again, I am very well aware of how difficult it is to make changes to our diet and our lifestyle choices, for today's Shine Challenge, I invite you to consider your diet in light of your spiritual health. Read and ponder Doctrine and Covenants section 89 and prayerfully determine if there is one way that you can better care for your body and better support that spirit within your body by fueling it well. We are not looking for extremes here. Remember that there is moderation in all things. Moderation is prudent in all things. But consider how small changes over time can create massive impact. And together, let's stand. Thank you so much for being here for this episode of the Stand With Will Net podcast. And I cannot wait to see you back here next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me today. If you are ready to dive in deeper and join the stand movement, find me on Instagram at Lynette Shepard, that's two N's, two P's, and an A-R-D, or at LynetteShepard.com. If you like what you heard today, please consider sharing the show with a friend or leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That works wonders in helping us to find the people that we can help. Thank you again and remember, you were born to stand. See you next time.